Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. This is our Recovering All Teaching Series. We're going to talk about toxic faith. Pretty critical message here this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We'll look at verses 15 through 29. Also grab your sermon notes out. You'll see at the top of those, beware of toxic teachers. The Bible warns us to beware of toxic teachers, Matthew 23, 4, toxic churches, 1 Corinthians, the whole letter is written to a pretty toxic church, 1 Corinthians, and then toxic beliefs, Colossians 2, 8, why? Because, because they are more about bondage making than bondage breaking. In John chapter 8, verses 31 through 32, Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will do what? It'll set you free. If you continue in my word, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul warned Timothy. He said, listen, dude. He didn't use that language, but he said, hey, come on. Watch your doctrine and life closely. I've watched, uh, I've seen this in the last few decades, but in particular the last few years, I watched two major ministry leaders crash and burn. One, because he didn't watch his his life very closely. The other one didn't watch his doctrine very closely. That's really important for us to do. Now, as I shared with you last weekend, we talked about it over the last two weekends, that, that our concept of God not only determines the quality of our relationship with God. In other words, when you came in here, your worship would either rise or fall with your concept of God. If your worship was kind of flat this morning, you'd probably have a real low, maybe a low concept of God. So your worship rises or falls with your concept of God, your heart affection towards him. And so not only does our concept of God determine the quality of our relationship with God, but it also determines uh, our ability to get through the trials and difficulties of life. It comes back to our, our concept of God. And... Um, Take a look at your notes. Notice this statement here. A lie about God believed to be true, so a lie about God believed to be true will affect your life as if it were true. Make sense? So if you have a lot of lies about God floating around in your mind, they're going to affect your life. Become creating a toxic faith. So here's what I want you to understand right at the, uh, right at the front of this is that if you're not running regularly into the arms of God and letting him smother you with his kisses, with his affection, and feasting on the abundance of his house, then something's wrong with your concept of God. Something is probably wrong with your concept of God. Uh, and I, I say it like that because at the end of the message, we're going to talk about the, the story found in Luke 15, and it's known as, uh, I call it, the prodigal sons. Both sons were prodigal, the elder brother, younger brother. And, and we're going to talk about that. That's where we're going to end the message. That's where we're headed with the message. And, uh, and the, remember the father running out to the younger son? And literally it says in, in the Greek, he smothered him with kisses. That's what we should be doing regularly, feasting at the at the banquet table of our Father and enjoying His presence and, and all of that. So that's where we're headed. I think that's the remedy of, of a toxic faith because it's, when you look at the story, it's the Father's love that brings our repentance, not the other way around. It's not our repentance that brings the Father's love. 
Enjoying God's presence is the summit of happiness. What's the main difference between a believer and a non-believer? We talked about that also the last couple of weeks. The main difference is that we have his presence. We have a relationship with the creator and the sustainer of the heavens and the earth. Oh my goodness. There's nothing better than that. In fact, his presence in our lives and enjoying his presence and being aware of his presence and interacting with him and having relationship with him is the summit, is the summit of happiness. And enjoying God's presence is the summit of happiness and it's ours by grace through faith in Christ. So let me ask you this question. Is your life characterized by more and more freedom because the truth will set you free if you continue in my word then you are really my disciples and the truth will set you free or more and more bondage? Because the opposite of that is true, too. If you have lies about God floating around in your heart, then it's going to create some bondage in your life. But the truth, the truth of God brings freedom, brings freedom to our lives. If you were to ask people who have rejected God or have turned away from faith to describe the God that they have rejected or turned away from, more than likely, they would describe a toxic faith or toxic God that I would have also rejected along with them. I find it quite interesting, and oftentimes when I see people bail out from church and they've been hurt or poisoned by a church or toxic church or whatever, it's, oftentimes that's, that's the case. And so my, my job sometimes and my desire is, oh, if you could only see the Father's heart for you. If you could only see the Father's heart for you, it would change all that. So that's where we're headed with our study. We've got some work to do talking toxic faith here, but before we uh, begin to dissect this text, let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? So God, we are delighted to be here today. We love your presence, and and you promised us, Father, you promised us that if we abide, if we live, if we dwell, if we make our home in your word, that it will not, that it not only identifies us as your as your disciples, but the truth of your word will set us free. And we ask that you would set us free from any toxic faith that has taken hold of our lives as we study your word so that we can have a healthy faith and live such exemplary lives of love, joy, and peace that it would refute the misconceptions that many people have about you, our God, making you gloriously attractive as you really are. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. So let's begin reading Toxic Faith, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, starting at verse 15. Listen to what he says, this first statement. In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Show of hands, how many have seen that in your life? Where you've seen, uh, as you've heard, I think the song says, the good die young or something like that. Is that how that song goes or maybe a phrase to that song? So, yeah, I've seen good people die young. That's what he's talking about here. I've seen wicked, evil, live long lives. That's what he's talking about here. So here's what a toxic faith would say. A toxic faith believes you suffer because you're not living right, either because, you're not living right because it's either hidden sin or lack of faith. I've heard people use that. In other words, good people have good things happen to them and bad people have bad things happen to them. That's that's the thinking. That's a toxic faith, by the way, okay? Just I want to remind you of that. There are certainly consequences to our bad behavior. Galatians 6, 7 through 9 talks about sowing and reaping. 
And it's like the law of gravity. There are moral laws. And for instance, if you lie, cheat, and steal, you lose jobs and friends and reputation. And so we don't, we don't break God's laws. We break ourselves against his laws, both natural and moral laws. So he's got natural laws. He's got moral laws too. But suffering, listen to me. This is what we talked about last week. Suffering for a child of God isn't punitive. It's not punishment. It's purifying. So when we as believers in Jesus Christ go through uh, suffering, it's not punishment. God's not punishing us. It's purifying. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, we talked about that. It's the discipline of our, of our daddy. He loves us because we have been set free from the penalty of sin. And I hear this all the time. People immediately say, Oh, God's, God's punishing me. No, he isn't. Are you a believer? He's not punishing you. That's not punishment. All of your punishment was placed upon Jesus, paid in full. So he's not going to have you pay for what he's already paid for. That's really, really important to understand. Because when you think like that, good people have good things happen to them, bad people have bad things happen to them, that's more, uh, that's more about karma, okay? That's karma. It's not... Christianity. Karma says you get what you deserve. It's associated with Hinduism. Christianity basically says Jesus got what you deserve. And so I hear people say those kind of things because, for instance, when someone that's wicked and evil crashes and burns when they die, I hear people say, well, they got what they deserve. Well, how do you know? Are you all knowing? Do you know that person's heart? Do you know exactly what they deserve? No, you don't. And then I hear people say this, oh, and when, when someone, someone's very good, tried to really live a, a, a righteous life before God, tried to honor God, give glory to God, and they die at a young age, and I hear people say, but he was such a good person. It's like, that's karma. That's not Christianity when you start talking like that. I can't believe that he went through all that. He's such a good person. What's, what, what's your point? And uh, bad things, the Bible says this over and over again, bad things can and will happen to good people. I mean good in the sense that people that are wanting to live lives that give glory to God. The Bible makes it very clear. I, I could give you a whole list of verses that make that very clear. The Bible, in fact, promises us that we will suffer difficulty and hardship. And the fact is that we live in a broken world. And so... In fact, Jesus, some of the last words that Jesus spoke to his disciples before he was going to hang on the cross, he said, in this world you will suffer trouble, trial, tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. In uh, 2 Timothy 3.12, uh, Paul writing to Timothy, he says, those who, try to, who really want to live a godly life are going to suffer persecution. James 1.2, count it all joy. When you encounter trials of many kinds, not if you encounter, but when as a matter of fact, it's going to happen. How are you going to respond? So don't ever, don't ever assume success is a sign of God's blessing any more than suffering is a sign of God's punishment. Back in 9-11, I remembered some prominent leaders getting up and saying, that's God's judgment upon this nation. Well, how do you know that? I think you have to be careful about those kind of judgments, about God's judgment. You have to be extremely careful with that. Paul hints in Romans 1.18 that really the worst punishment would be to get the happy life you want and never waking up to your pride and desperate need for God. It actually refers to that as the wrath of God. 
Remember in that text, Romans chapter one, where it says three times that God gave them up? What is he giving them up to? The desires of their hearts. They can run headlong into whatever they, their heart desires and fill themselves up and just totally be intoxicated with all of life, never coming to terms with who God is and how much they are in desperate need of God. And so we inflict, we inflict, inflict further difficulty on ourselves and on others when we believe that behind every problem is a hidden sin or a lack of faith. It just creates more problems. It just drives us further from true faith in God. I mean, imagine telling a couple who can't have children or parents who just lost a child that it was because of a hidden sin or lack of faith. I've heard people say that too. It's appalling. It just further traumatizes them. Rather than to focus on a sin that doesn't exist or on the size of our faith which doesn't help, we should be focusing on how God can use the problem in our life to build our faith by focusing on the object of our faith. You know that it's not the size of your faith. I mean, somehow, I've heard people say, well, if you just had more faith, well, so how am I supposed to muster up more faith? You just kind of really strain and believe and try hard and what, what, I mean, how does that happen? And so what happens is that people become preoccupied with the with the size of their faith rather than the, the focus of their faith, the object of their faith, and it's through the object of your faith that your faith grows. So get to know the object and your faith will naturally grow. And by the way, it's not the size of your faith, it's, it's the object of your faith. And it actually even says in Scripture, it says that mustard seed faith can move mountains. So it doesn't take much faith. A little bit of faith in, a, in, in the object, the Lord Jesus Christ, there's, some, there's stuff happening. That's, that's what he makes very clear, Matthew 17, 20. So we as believers should be lifting burdens, not piling on, especially in times of suffering. If there's any place that people should run, they ought to be able to run into the church and run into, into Christ and run to Christians, and they can point them to Jesus. Because didn't our Savior say, come unto me all ye that are burdened and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest? There's rest in our Savior. There's amazing rest. He invites us in, says, come, come to me. You will find rest for your weary soul. I love that. I love that. And so, he is for us. He is for us and not against us. He, he proved it. Romans 8, 31, 32. He gave his life for us. So when we, when we go through suffering, we need to help people in that and navigate that and, and see that he is for us, even in the midst, even more so in the midst of our difficulty and our pain and our suffering. He loves us. Now let's continue reading. And now it gets really, we're going to head into a section here that really gets tedious here because I've got quite a number of examples here. But uh, verses 16 through 19, he says, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? He's actually talking about self-righteousness. Because you, some might immediately go, well, see, he doesn't want us to be too serious about this whole God thing, so don't get too serious about it. No, no, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about pride. He's talking about self-righteousness. Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? He's actually talking about the imbalances that we find ourselves in. We run to these extremes in an unhealthy way. It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand for the one. Here's the this is the cure to what he's talking about, these extremes. 
He says, for the one who fears God, so the fear of God, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9.10, so the one who fears God, the fear of the Lord is a, is a life-transforming, joyful awe and wonder of the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for us that, that ruins you for anything else. That's what he's talking about here. Be captivated by the beauty of God and who he is. And uh, he says, shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise, more, uh, the wise man, more than 10 rulers who are in a city. So, so toxic faith not only believes you suffer because you're, living, you're not living right, either because of hidden sin or lack of faith, but also right here, it falls prey to extremes. Falls prey to, uh, falls prey to extremes. Okay, real quick uh, question for you, show of hands. How many, when you've committed your life to Jesus, you no longer sinned after that? You no longer sinned? No more sin. Anybody? Anybody? There was about three in the earlier service, and we prayed for them at the end of the service. Okay. People like that need a lot of prayer. Like you didn't, you don't, you don't ever sin, you, you didn't sin, you stopped sinning when you committed your life to Christ. So here's the reality of it. When you committed your life to Christ, you continue to sin, you struggle with sin. Would you guys agree with that? You continue to struggle with sin? But here's the amazing truth. That, so this was happening simultaneously. Not only did you continue to struggle with sin, but simultaneously, he loves and accepts you unconditionally. That's happening at the same time. So you continue to struggle with sin, and yet he loves you and accepts you unconditionally. That's amazing. Now, what happens here? So, so the truth is, is that you and I are more sinful than we ever dared to think, but we're more loved than we ever dared to dream. That's happening simultaneously. We struggle with sin, and yet he loves and accepts us in the midst of that struggle. So what happens is that Oftentimes, we run to one extreme or the other. So we focus on the struggle with sin to the exclusion that we are loved and accepted, and that humbles us, but we have no confidence in it, and we have fear in our lives. Or we go to the other extreme where we focus in on the being loved and accepted uh, minus the struggle with sin, and that gives us confidence, but we're not humble. We're filled with pride. And so it creates this, creates this uh, dilemma within our lives when we push either of those truths to, to an extreme. If you're a child of God, you don't lose your status if you have a bad week. Does that make sense? You don't lose your status. You're still a child of God, even when you have a bad week. And that need, we need to keep that in mind. It's, it's understanding our status that helps us with our bad week helps us to get through the difficulties that we, we face. And so what happens is that when you understand, I still struggle with sin, and yet he still loves me and adores me and cares for me. So what that should create within you is a humble confidence that I haven't arrived, I still struggle, that humbles me, I'm not going to cop an attitude like I'm better than you and more superior and look how great I am because all that I have in him, I earned it because I'm such a good person. That doesn't happen. We don't do that. That's not the gospel. So that humbles us, but I've never been more loved. And I'm a mess. And yet he loves me. And so it creates, uh, that gives us confidence and eliminates the fear in our lives. So therefore, as a Christian, there should not be any swagger. Hey, everybody, look at me. Look how great I am. Of course he loves me. <laughs> look how great I am. You know, I've got it together. I can see why he picked me to be a part of his team. 
That's crazy. That's not the gospel. You don't understand. It's by God's grace. He didn't pick you because you had it all together. He picked you because you didn't. And you needed him. But then there shouldn't be any sniveling either. So there should be no swagger, but there should be no sniveling. Listen, regardless of what you go through, the God of the universe loves you, adores you, gave his life for you. Are you kidding me? Yeah, no. No, I'm not. Yeah, you need to know that. Yeah, that's overwhelming. That's overwhelming. So no swagger, no sniveling. So can you see the balance? Humble confidence. Humble confidence. No superiority, no inferiority. So it's a great way to live. Okay, we got a number of other ones here. Here's the next one. By the way, this isn't up on the screen. You noticed that, didn't you? You saw that. It's not up on the screen. It's actually on your notes. That's why you probably need to have notes to work through this. Here's the next kind of we fall prey to extremes. Legalism. Legalism says that would be toxic faith. I obey, therefore God accepts me. And I see religious addicts feeling they can never do enough. They're driven. I got to do more. I got to earn God's blessing. You, you got God's blessing. Now, out of that abundance, live for him and his glory. The other extreme would be antinomianism. God accepts me, therefore I, can, I don't have to obey. The gospel actually says God accepts me, therefore I want to obey. You see the difference? So we can tend to swing to one of those extremes, and when you, we extreme to either legalism or antinomianism, it's a toxic faith. But really having a healthy faith is God accepts me, therefore I obey him. Here's the next one. If it's going to be, it's up to me. So it's a really a heavy emphasis on human responsibility. If I'm going to change, if I'm going to get over this addiction, if I'm going to get over these hurts, i got to work hard. That's that one extreme. And then there's the other extreme is let go, let God. God's sovereignty, God's part. We talked about it last week, Philippians 2, 12 through 13, that certainly we have a part in this and God has a part in this. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasures. So... So certainly, you have a part, and uh, God has a part. I heard a guy saying that he gave his addiction to God every day, and it kept coming back to him. And I'm thinking, dude, you need to get in your car and drive to a Celebrate Recovery program and get some help. Somehow, you're going to let go and let God. You, have, you play a part in that. And so like a farmer, we must plow the field and plant the seed, but God germinates the seed and brings the growth. So keep in mind that balance between the two. Here's the next one. Take sin seriously, but don't wallow in your guilt. And so uh, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance, Romans 2, 4. So you take your sin seriously. You recognize, man, I'm off track. I need to get back. Man, it's, God has a better way for me to, to live. It also tells us in John 8, 11, remember how Jesus responded to the woman that was caught in adultery? He said, where are your accusers? I have none. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus saying to her, and go and sin no more. The go and sin no more came after the fact that he said, neither do I condemn you. If you reverse the order, it becomes toxic. But that's, that's it. Take sin seriously, but don't wallow in your guilt. We either don't take sin seriously or we wallow in our guilt. But we need to, we need to take sin seriously, but don't wallow in your guilt. Because by God's grace, he sets us free. We need to move on with our life. Here's another one. All grace and no truth or all truth and no grace. I see this oftentimes represented in, in uh, toxic churches, extreme intolerant churches that are legalistic, judgmental, hellfire, brimstone, condemning, condescending, commanding, holding, holding up signs about who God hates versus the extreme tolerant churches are afraid to say anything offensive and refuse to talk about sin. So, that, so you got these two extremes that we can, we can run into, but the Bible makes it very clear that we need to speak the truth in love. 
That's how we grow. That's how we mature, Ephesians 4, 15. And truth isn't mean. Truth isn't mean, and love isn't dishonest. You need to have the balance between those two. The gospel has two parts. It has the part that says you're a sinner, and it has the part that says you're loved and accepted. And both of those need to be proclaimed and preached. That's, that creates balance. Here's another one. In prayer, we're to ask boldly but surrender completely. Now, here, I see people that will ask boldly, but they don't surrender completely, or people that just give up and surrender completely but don't ask boldly. I think there's a good balance here, and it's taught to us by our Savior, Jesus, when he was in the garden in Luke 22:42, 42, he said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. There's that asking boldly. But then he also said, if, uh, he also said, not my will, but your will be done. So you see the balance? That's a real healthy balance. Because I hear people want to name it and claim it, and God, you're going to give it to me, and I'm going to force it out of your hands one way or another. It's like, what, 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 what? Listen to me. God will give to you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knew. He loves you. So you come to him and you ask boldly. By the way, if you struggle with things in your life, and if you're struggling, and we've had that with a few folks here, uh, where they were struggling with cancer. And we're going to pray like crazy. We're going to ask boldly that God will, would either heal you miraculously or through medicine, or maybe he might even take you home and heal you, take you to be with him. And ultimately, though, we're going to surrender completely because we trust his loving, wise control of our lives. But there's that balance between, between the two there. In prayer, ask boldly but surrender completely. Here's the next one. Theology minus doxology equals dead orthodoxy. Turn to the person next to you real quick and see if they know what the word doxology is. You guys do that also over there in the breezeway. What is doxology? Oh, my goodness. How come he's throwing all these big words at us this morning? Okay, anybody want to yell out to me what doxology is? Worship, Worship. yeah. Worship. So look at the equation here. So theology, study of God, minus doxology, if it doesn't stir your heart to worship, that's called dead orthodoxy. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. So your heart and your capacity to not only love God and love others should be growing as you're beginning to understand who God is. As we study together week in and week out, Oh my goodness, your heart should just be getting bigger and bigger. Oh, I love God. I love God. But if you're not, you're just checking the church box. You're just going through the motions. You're not having an encounter with the living God. So theology minus doxology is dead orthodoxy. There's the other extreme too. Doxology, worship, minus theology is idolatry. And, and this is more from my background. I come from a Pentecostal charismatic background where there was an addiction to religious higher emotionalism. You guys know what emotionalism is? Emotionalism is stirring up emotion apart from truth rather than through truth. Is that being in these settings sometimes where people go, they'd have these worship leaders or people come, would get up and say, come on, come on, you can do more than that, you can worship better than that, come on, come on. Okay. We'll worship when you start giving us something to worship about, okay? But see, what happens is it becomes more of this emotionalism. They're just trying to get people cranked up. But believe me, when you begin to understand the reality of who God is, you will be stirred up. Now, there's a couple different responses when you begin to encounter the presence of God. Sometimes you can get loud. Certainly you just go, whoa, that's awesome. But sometimes you get really quiet. Sometimes the presence of God, there's a hush. 
you have a sense of his presence. Oh my goodness, it's almost healing. It's just like, oh, it's refreshing. So it doesn't, just, doesn't mean necessarily you're always going to get loud. Sometimes you get quiet. And so, so I've been in those settings where people go, come on, you can amen better than that. Come on. And I've done that too. I, I understand. I apologize. Because I've done that sometimes. But people like, you guys don't even, are you guys here? Come on, come on, come on. But uh, I try to build it on truth. It should be based on truth. So it should be, it should be this, uh, should be theology plus doxology. Theology, based on good theology. Should create great doxology. Worship equals soul-satisfying, life-liberating transformation. So, so when, you, when you begin to have a sense of the presence of God, oh my goodness, sometimes it is, it's like celebrational. And other times it's just like, oh, reflective and quiet. It's like, oh. So don't try to put people in a box somehow, and so that's all part of that. Okay, let's continue on. Here's one that's a bit controversial. I'm going to challenge you on this one. In the essentials, there is unity. In non-essentials, there is, and actually write this on your notes, liberty. It's, it, I think it's better said liberty, or it can be harmony too, but it's liberty. But in all things, show love. So what faith, your faith becomes toxic when you try to take non-essentials and turn them into essential beliefs. And so you've got to know the difference between essential beliefs and non-essential beliefs. And so the non-essential beliefs we can debate, but we shouldn't divide over. And uh, let me give you a quick, uh, which I, I believe, and this is how we see it here at Desert Breeze, is that a non-essential belief is... Uh, I have friends who love Jesus, they're Christians, and they're Arminian. And then I have other friends love Jesus, they're certainly Christians, and they're Calvinist. And then I have Christian, I have friends who don't even know what the heck I'm talking about when I say Arminian, Calvinist. And they all love Jesus. So we can debate Arminian, Calvinism, we can debate it, but we're not going to divide over it, because here's the essential. The essential is that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Jesus is the one that saves us. We, we, that's what we agree on and we, we believe in. So, so that, here's another one, is eschatology. Is that uh, there's, there's actually four primary views of eschatology that all fit within the pale of orthodoxy. Now, we'll, we will debate those, but we're not going to divide over those. But one essential to eschatology is, guess what? Jesus is coming back. And that's the reality of it. The Bible is very clear about that. So, but but you've got to know the difference between the two. Otherwise, your faith can become toxic. You start pressing your, your, your non-essential beliefs of liberty on people as if they're essential beliefs. You've got to be okay with that. But ultimately, in everything, there should be love. Here's another one. Independent versus dependent. Now, when it comes to uh, our relationship with a local church family and American Christians, would you say that as Christians that we tend to be more independent or more dependent upon the local church family? What is it in our America today? Independent or dependent? Independent. How many would say independent? How many would say more dependent? Nobody. Because we, we, more, we don't real, realize how much we need a local church family. And so, we, I don't need them. I can be a Christian without a church. That's the attitude. And that's extremely unhealthy. You're going to crash and burn. But then you can be overly dependent 
to where that local church family is enabling you and, and, and it's unhealthy. I gave you the verse there. It says, bear one another's burdens. That's Galatians 6.2. But then in verse 5, it says, each one should carry his own load. It almost sounds like a contradiction. So there are certain things that only you can do, but there are certain things that you are desperate in need of in community. And, and so we talked a lot about this during our relationship series that, was, that preceded this series. The subtitle of that series was A Mess Worth Making, and it was in the weekend that we talked about boundaries. There's got to be balance in our life. Here's, a, here's another one that's a, that's a really one that I see Christians fall to some extremes in. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing, 2 Corinthians 6.10. That's how we live our lives as Christians, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Here's how the toxic faith sounds. In tragedy, true believers should have peace. You're going through tragedy, you should have peace. If you were a true believer, you would have peace. That's a toxic faith that says that. I see a lot of Christians walking around with ungrieved wounds from tragedy. So what this verse is telling me, guess what? You're going to be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. Christians should, shouldn't be optimistic because we know too much about sin. Nor should we be pessimistic because we know the living God. So, so here's, here's the balance. Here's the balance. Is that we should be the saddest people on this planet Earth because of the brokenness of this world and the, and the devastation that sin has brought upon this planet. And we, we should be able to help people grieve and grieve along with them. But, but we should be the happiest people on this planet because we have hope in the gospel. We have Christ. So there's this balance between sorrowful yet always rejoicing. That's why he said that in 2 Corinthians 6, 10. There's that balance. There should be balance in our life. I've got to be able to grieve those losses and in the midst of those losses, reach out and embrace the hope that we have in, in Christ. And then here's another one. Here's our last one. These are things that just came to mind as I was thinking about these extremes in Christianity and in my own life. But three enemies. We have three enemies. Satan, sin, and society. Oftentimes I hear people want to blame everything on Satan. And uh, sometimes it's not Satan, it's just your own sinful nature and the influence of the society on your life. And so there needs to be that balance. Okay, uh, enough said there, but you can see that how we can fall to these extremes and how we need desperately balance. Verse 20, he says, Surely there is, there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So that's a, that's a pretty strong statement there. The Bible's very clear about that. So a toxic faith would say, a toxic faith never confesses sin always works hard to give the impression that you never struggle or are tempted with sin or have failed in any way so that you can feel spiritually superior to others. That would be a toxic faith. That was a long sentence, wasn't it? But I think you get the point. I, I'll never forget this. When we first started out as a church here at Desert Breeze, we were in a group with a bunch of couples, and the couples were going around and introducing themselves, and then there was a time when we were beginning to share some of our struggles, and there was actually a couple in there that uh, said, well, we don't really have problems. We're kind of wondering why we're even in this group. And I thought everybody in that group was going to throw them in the middle of the group and dogpile them. <laughs> boom, boom. You might not have a tr trouble now, but you, you, you didn't then, but now you do because we're going to pound on you. You know, it was kind of one of those things, but, but it was just kind of odd. And, and when anybody ever comes off like that, I always, always want to take them to 1 John 1, 8. If you claim to be without sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. James 5, 16 says, confess your faults one to another, pray for one another and you'll be healed. So toxic faith goes something like this. The faithful don't have problems. 
In fact, there are even certain kind of groups that I've been around before, and they will say things like, you don't need Celebrate Recovery because you can celebrate Jesus. Just celebrate Jesus. Or they'll say things like, you don't need 12 steps. We just have one step. It's to Jesus. Come on. And if you struggle in any way, at least pretend you don't struggle. And if you do struggle in any way, at least get it together before you come back and hang out with us. There's almost kind of that, uh, kind of that nonverbal communication. I've been in groups like that. It's like, what? And it created this really this almost an uncomfortableness. Some churches are shame-inducing rather than shame-reducing. Now listen to me. Jesus was a friend of sinners. That was a derogatory statement, by the way, made by the Pharisees about Jesus. And Jesus took it and said, that's right. And I am so glad that he's a friend of sinners. I have found him to be an amazing friend because this sinner desperately needed him. And um, see, Christians, when people come into Desert Breeze and when you interact with people, we should make everyone feel cherished regardless, regardless of their struggles. The church should be a place where sick people feel welcomed because whether we know it or not, we are all sick. And if you don't know that, then you're really sick. That's the fact. You are in desperate need of Jesus, and you don't even know it. So we're all, we all are in need of Jesus, and some of us know it, some of us don't know it. Verses 21 through 22. Do not take to heart, I love this verse, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. I've heard many people curse me, Pastor Ray, cursing that's just, that's part of the territory. There's people out there that will say things about me, and I'm cool with it, I understand. Some of it is deserving, some of it isn't, but that's the way it is. But notice what he says here in verse 22. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. So do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. The more you realize that the only person in the universe whose opinion matters looks at you and he finds you more valuable than all the wealth in this world, the less you'll take yourself too seriously and be defensive and judgmental. In fact, that's the next couple fill in the blanks. So toxic faith is that you take yourself too seriously and you're defensive and judgmental. I was a part of a church for a number of years and it was fascinating about this church. It really messed with me. It messed with my head for a while because it was, uh, it was an, an abusive, unhealthy uh, environment in a lot of different ways. But the, the leadership would do a lot of what is known as power posturing. They did a lot of power posturing where the leadership spent a lot of time reminding people of the leadership's authority and how much we should be submitting to their authority. That's called power posturing. And it's just God's, uh, I, I always called it God's man of faith and power syndrome where the guy kind of floats in, he's the untouchable leader and he's the big guns and, and uh, he's got like a hotline to God, almost like he's part of a secret society of intimate friends and so you need to hang close to him to be able to hear from God and that's extremely unhealthy. That's extremely unhealthy uh, in that environment and uh, it's almost kind of like, and you'd hear people say, don't touch God's anointed. 
And so if you question or challenge the leadership, you're rebellious and demonic. That's what they said about me. You're being rebellious and you're demonic. It's like, uh, I don't think so. I'm just asking some valid questions. And it's, so what they would do is they'd put me in a category to try to, it was, it's, a, it's a form of manipulation and control is what it is. It's power posturing. And one of the things that I learned through the years is that healthy faith, healthy organization, healthy church welcomes critical evaluation and tough questions as opportunities to learn and relate. That's what I've loved about Desert Breeze. I love about our staff. I love about our elders is that we're like, man, if we're getting it wrong, please let us know. Because we want to honor God. We want to glorify Him. He's ain't about us. It's not about us being right. It's about us following Christ and helping others to follow Christ. And that's so critical because I've seen a lot of churches go, go south, go, go off track because they make too much of, of their leadership and we're untouchable and so there's that power posturing that can take place. There's almost also kind of an elitist mindset that can be part of that. It's just we, we take ourselves too seriously that, that we're the corner, we've got a corner on the market. Only Desert Breeze can reach the city of Phoenix with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you kidding me? I mean, when we begin to argue with other churches about our people and the people that we've got, it's like, I heard a guy say it like this, it's like one ant arguing with another ant who's going to eat the elephant. <laughs> because there are 200,000 unchurched people living within a five-mile radius of desert breeze. We mo need more churches. I wish we could send out churches that would plant right across the freeway, all the way up and down the freeway, every place in this neighborhood. We need more churches. We need more people that are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not territorial here. Because it, it's, not a, it's not about us. Listen to me. If you put me on a pedestal and follow me, you're going to be really, really disappointed. Just ask my wife. She'll tell you. But man, you keep your eyes on Jesus. If I can help you, if I can help you to see him more clearly, oh, praise God, I, that, I feel better. And you begin to follow him with all of your heart, man, that is, that's music to my ears. That's, that's what we need. We don't have a corner in the market. We just want to follow Jesus. We want to help as many people as we can follow Jesus. And sometimes this elitist mindset can be seen in our, the rightness of our doctrine, puts us in right standing with God rather than by God's grace. It's our right doctrine. That's why God is pleased with us. No, no, no. It's by God's grace he's pleased with you. It's not your right doctrine. Yeah, you need to work on your doctrine. That's important. But don't make your doctrine somehow kind of an achievement that you somehow achieved, you know, right standing. That's an elitist mindset. Or here's another one I see. Spiritual gifts and ministry success can be a kind of a counterfeit God. I mean, there's some unbelievably talented guys out there that, and I see a lot of people enamored by him. It's like, oh, he's unbelievable. He's an un incredible communicator. And I've seen a lot of these very gifted guys crash and burn. And people go, I can't believe it. Well, we'll believe it. Because gifts are given, fruit is grown. There's a difference between gifts and fruit. Fruit has to do with character. You can have all the gifts in the world, but if you don't have character to support it, you're going to crash. And so the biggest, the most important thing you should be asking is that this is, okay, I like what he says and he's very talented, but does he have character? I hope he does. I'm going to pray that he does. That's, that's important. That's really critical to have that character, that depth. And so that's, that's part of that. 
Look at verses 23 through 25. All of this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. I mean, he's just dumbfounded. He's just trying to work through life. Why, why are we here? What's the purpose of life? What's going on? That which has been is far off and deep and very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. How does life work? And to know the wickedness of folly and of the foolishness that is madness? Why is this place so busted up? So a toxic faith can't handle doubts, questions, and deep mysteries of God. So that's what he's doing. He's just grappling with these, these doubts, questions, and deep mysteries of God. Romans eleven thirty three through 36, it says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. That's kind of the elder brother syndrome, kind of thinking that God owes you. Hey, I lived a really a good life, so I deserve a good life from God. He said, God doesn't owe anybody anything. Verse 36, he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So the mysteries of God are not meant to be conquered, but to be celebrated. Pharisees and those that have a toxic faith will act like they have all the answers and treat God like he's a vending machine. Put the right coins in, you get the right product out. And uh, if you have enough faith, you can be healed. If you weren't healed, you didn't have faith. Could be sin too. That's right. That's toxic faith. We name it and claim it and presume that God is going to give us the happy life that we deserve. We demand that he put his stamp of approval on our plan. That's a toxic faith. I love jo Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, she became a quadriplegic when she was 16 years old, dove into a shallow lake. She's a phenomenally godly, wise woman. If you've ever read any of her books, uh, you will agree. One of my favorite books by her is When God Weeps, It's on Suffering. And she had a preacher one time say to her, if you had real faith, you could get up out of that wheelchair. Johnny responded, it's very classic, I love it. She says, it takes more faith to sit here and smile at you than it would be for me to get up and walk. <laughs> Go, Johnny. She's an unbelievably godly woman that loves the Lord and has faith. I want her faith. I want the faith that she has. Here's another thing. Toxic faith fails to see that sin problems are complex and multifaceted. And simplistic and reductionistic pat answers are unhealth, unhelpful and alienate. Just trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus. I shouldn't make fun of old songs like that, but there's almost kind of sounds a little bit simplistic, but it's not. It's much more difficult than that. It's much more difficult. Listen to me. That's why Paul told Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. It's a fight. No simple answers. We're multidimensional image bearers of God. And so there's a complexity to, to the issues of our life. Look at verse 26. It says, and I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, chains. He, 
Notice, so, so okay, look, look up here just for a minute. So remember that Solomon, Solomon, do you think maybe he had a, like a sexual addiction going on? I mean, how many wives did he have? Too many, okay. He had 700. How many concubines? 300. So listen to what he's writing here. There's something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, chains. Notice he's, here's the solution. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Now, now listen to this. This was, what I'm going to share with you was revolutionary for me when I begin to understand this. So he's asking the question, how do you overcome the many temptations of life? That's what he's struggling with. Anything we find more fascinating than God is because our mind is being distorted and deceived by sin. Anything that you find more desirable and more satisfying than God, it's because your mind is being distorted and deceived by sin. You need to keep that in mind. Anytime you're chasing after these things, somehow thinking that these are the things that are going to satisfy the deepest longing of my soul, that's not true. Only he, only God can satisfy the deepest longings of our soul. Anything we look to besides God to satisfy will need greater and greater doses to get the same initial rush. I mean, after, after 100 wives, he's probably thinking, well, maybe if I had 200, how about 300? How about 700? I'm just going to add some concubines onto that. It's not going to happen. Listen, this dude, this dude was wiser and wealthier and prettier than any of us, okay? And he's coming up empty because he's trying to find the deepest satisfaction in his soul satisfied by something in creation as opposed to, to the creator. Only God increasingly satisfies. So here's, here's what... This is what changes our lives. You got to keep this in mind. This is how our change happens. So a toxic faith manipulates and controls by fear and or pride rather than motivates through love and truth. Manipulates and controls by fear and or pride rather than uh, motivates through, through love and truth. So what is, what is fear motivation? So how do I overcome, you know, the, the temptations of life? Through fear. If I use fear, God's going to get you. God's coming after you. That's fear. And pride would be, you don't want to be like all those losers out there that are addicted to porn. You know, you want to be on the winning team. We win here at this place, at this church. We can win at life. That's pride. That's pride. And that won't last rather than motivates through love and truth. See, common virtue, that's called common virtue, fear and pride motivation. So, okay, okay, listen to me. You got to get this. You got to understand this. Is it, can you do bad things out of fear and pride, motivated out of fear and pride? Can you do bad things out of fear and pride? Yeah, yeah. Can you do good things motivated out of fear and pride? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you can, you can go from doing bad things to good things out of fear and pride. But you haven't dealt with what's fundamentally wrong with all of us. It's our self-centeredness. So you can actually harness someone's self-centeredness to move them from, being, from being, doing bad things to doing good things, but using extrinsic motivation through fear and pride. That's about them. But it's only when your heart is smitten and captivated and overwhelmed by the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is, that begins to transform your heart. And you're doing good things, not for you, 
You're doing it for him. You're doing it because you love him. You've never been more loved. And he has become the desire of your heart. See, fear and pride will last for only a, for a while. It's called common virtue. Good behavior motivated by fear and pride has, has not done anything to root out the fundamental causes of evil, self-centeredness. It has restrained the heart, but, but only love, love and truth can transform the heart. Now, let's go to the root of this. The root of our problem. So, man, we went through a lot of stuff talking about the difference between toxic faith and healthy faith. But the root of our problem, he, he hits the nail on the head, verses 27 through 29. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher. While adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, how life works, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all of these I found not. I, I, I have not found. Now here's the answer. See, this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Here's the answer. We are sinners by nature and by choice and seek to remedy our problem through self-salvation projects. <clears throat> I'm almost finished. This is really important that you listen up. Because this is the solution to our toxic faith. <clears throat> we are sinners by nature and by choice and seek to remedy our problem through self-salvation projects. There's two ways that we try to do that. The first one is irreligion. It's called self-discovery. That's the younger brother in the prodigal son's story. Remember, I don't need father anymore. Give me my inheritance and I'm gonna go out and do my own thing. That's one way we do it. We think we're smarter than God. He's holding out on us. We're going to find it on our own. That's the irreligion approach. And then there's the religious approach. That's moral conformity. That's the elder brother. He left the father without leaving the farm. That's the one I most relate to. I never did the, the younger brother gig. I didn't do the irreligion self-discovery. But I certainly did the religion moral conformity. And that was more of me. And all of us will do one or the other or kind of a combination of both to somehow save ourselves. And that's why I love Luke 15, 11 through 32, the story. Remember the story of the, the son who wants his inheritance and he goes out and what does he do? He goes to a far country and spends it on wild living and prostitutes. And then there's a famine that hits the land and where does he find himself? Where everybody finds themselves eventually when they try to find happiness apart from God? In the pig pen. And thank God, while he's in the pig pen, he comes to his senses. And in his mind, he begins to think, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is pathetic. My father's servants are treated better than what I'm being treated right now. I know what I'll do. I know what I'll do. So he begins to rehearse this, this speech. I'll go to my father. I'll apologize. I don't deserve to be your son. And I want you, would you please, would you please make me one of your hired hands? And so he, he gets himself up and so he starts heading home. And I love it. I love it. it. It almost sends a chill down my back when I think about it. As he's a long ways off, the Bible says he was a long ways off. Guess who's looking for him? The dad, his father, sees him from a distance and runs out to him. I mean, that was so unlike these dignified fathers. They wouldn't do that. No, this father's heart is attached to his wayward son. And he runs out to him, and literally it says this. 
He kisses him. And literally, the Greek says he smothers him with kisses. And of course, the son has this speech already. He goes, Dad, I'm not worthy to be in the dead. Quiet. Be quiet. Kind of like, not, uh, yeah, whatever. But here, put a ring on his finger, robe on his back, shoes on his feet. Because my son is home. Let's celebrate. Let's butcher the fattened calf. Let's party. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. In the arms of his dad, smothered with kisses. I love that. I love that. So they're partying. But guess, where's the elder brother? Where's the elder brother? He's ticked off royally. Toxic faith. Both of them have toxic faith. The other one's toxic faith is remedied in the arms of of the father. The elder brother's toxic faith will also be remedied, but we don't know because it's kind of a cliffhanger in how it ends. But, but, the, but he's just, he doesn't want to have anything to do with it. And in fact, here's your next fill in the blanks. So the elder brothers, Pharisees, this is a toxic faith. They have an attitude, attitude of superiority. Su- superiority complex. Fear-based, joyless compliance to rules. And are very bitter, very bitter when things don't go well because they feel God owes them. This is, this is what produces toxic faith. Elder brothers beat the heck out of younger brothers. In fact, I always thought of the story that if one of the, the elder brothers saw the son coming before the father saw him and he went out and met him, and that's what happens in many of our churches this, today because there are churches out there that are elder brother churches. There are churches that out there, sometimes someone comes to the church wanting help and they're met at the door by an elder brother that beats the heck out of them. How dare you go out and spend the inheritance like that? Not only do elder brothers beat the heck out of Younger brothers, but they beat the heck out of each other. It's just like, it's, it's pride. How, how do you know whether you're an elder brother or not? So I can tell you, because I've, I've been that, done that, can fall prey to that. How do you respond to sin in others? How do you respond? Do you respond with disgust or mercy? Disgust or mercy? It's like, how dare they get their act together and be like you? It's like, that's arrogant. You don't understand the mercy of the Father. That's what creates that toxic faith. So the solution, and this is really one of the few times that you hear the tender words for Pharisees from Jesus, because usually Jesus has got some pretty hard words for him. But in Luke 15, 28 through 32, let me read this. But he was angry and refused to go into the party. Oh, listen to this. Oh, my goodness. This is overwhelming when I read this. His father came out and entreated him. His father came out and entreated him. Now, see, if I was the father, I would have gone out there and said, listen, listen, kid. Listen, we don't treat our siblings like this in this household. You get your butt in there and you put a big smile on your face because we're going to celebrate for your, for your brother. See, that's, that would be my attitude. And it's, it's, that's what we typically do. It's behavioral modification. I'm just going to get my kid to behave the way he should, and you're going to put a smile on your face whether you like it or not. The father doesn't do that. The father appeals to his heart because he knows real life change happens deep inside. It's not fear or pride motivation. It's heart. It's love. And he appeals to him. But notice how the son responds, but he answered his father, look, Notice how disrespectful. These many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Do you see superiority complex, fear-based, joyless compliance to rules, bitterness? Yes. 
Listen to these words that were a ton of bricks on me a number of years ago. I've never been the same since I read this. And his father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Oh, my goodness. See, the younger son couldn't wait to get back into the presence of the father. And he had the presence of the father. He didn't realize what he had. Do you understand what we have by God's grace? We have the presence of God. We have the father's presence. Son, you are always with me. And not just that, and all that is mine is yours. We have an inheritance that's beyond our wildest dreams. And we have we have this position of being a child of God where he can lavish us regularly with his love. The father continues on and says, it was fitting to celebrate and to be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive and he was lost and is, is found. So I like one, one theologian put it this way, the message of the, the parable ends with tenderness to both brothers. Come in from the foreign country of misery and come in from the porch of hard-earned merit both are deadly, but inside is the banquet of grace and forgiveness and fellowship with an all-satisfying Father. Now, there's, there's a striking difference between this parable and the first two in Luke 15. In the first two parables, the lost sheep and the lost coin, someone goes out and searches diligently for that which is lost. But in startling contrast, no one goes out to search for the younger brother to bring him home. And Jesus wants his listeners really to ask, who, who should have gone out and searched for the lost son, the elder, the elder brother, who's a picture of the Pharisees who were grumbling that Jesus was, a, was attracting tax collectors and sinners. And so by Jesus in this story, by putting a flawed elder brother in the story, Jesus wants us to long for the true one himself, the true elder brother, who didn't just go to the next country to find us, but came all the way from heaven to earth and was willing to pay the infinite cost of his life to bring us into God's family. Here's the last point. We, we finish right here. The assurance of the Father's love through the indispensable and costly sacrifice of the true elder brother, Jesus, who came to seek and to save those that are lost, Luke 19.10, will humble you, fill you with joy, and give you a heart to reach both elder and younger brothers for the Father's glory. Let's pray. Father God, whether we tend to be younger brothers or elder brothers, rid us of our toxic faith as you, as you lavish us with your love through the indispensable and costly sacrifice of our true elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. May it humble us, fill us with unspeakable and glorious, obedient joy, and may we here at Desert Breeze have a heart to reach both elder and younger brothers and be a place where both can run into your loving arms Father, so that, so that you can smother them with kisses, with affection, and that they can feast on the abundance of your house. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.